0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, one of your hosts, and I'm here with Colin Rose from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, to discuss his new book, A Renaissance of Violence, Homicide in Early Modern Italy, out from Cambridge University Press in 2019. Hello, Colin.
1: Hey, how are you doing?
0: Ah, We're super. We're about to have a heat stroke here, a hot spell in Amsterdam, but otherwise we're good.
1: That's good. Uh, Ours has just ended
0: oh thankfully yeah it's just i'm just i am a i am not a cold or a hot weather girl despite working in italy
1: well that's why i go to italy to get away from the uh, canadian (laughs) winters right
0: (laughs) sure right but yeah not this summer i'm sorry no no archival work for you
1: not yet trying to figure out how we'll do that in the near future
0: oh yeah it will be it can happen yeah um We'll get back to normal at some point, right?
1: Whatever normal will look like.
0: Whatever normal will look like, we say optimistically. Yeah,
1: exactly. All
0: right, All right let's turn to your book. So uh, I like to ask my guests how they came to this work, and I'd like mm-hmm. to do the same with you. I mean, it's very clearly a revision, a revision of your dissertation, mm-hmm. right, which is its own sort of thing. But, you know, what brought you to the topic of, of homicide and early modern Italy?
1: So I have always, um, I mean, not always, I've been interested in in Italy since my undergraduate studies at the University of Toronto, uh, where I was studying with uh, Nicholas Terpstra, who was there, and there's sort of this wide community of early modern Italianists in Toronto, um, and you, you just got a lot of exposure there. I have no business being an Italian historian uh, in terms <laughs> of my background or anything, but um, it's such a fascinating and, and rich field, especially coming from... Uh, such a concentration of scholars there. Um, So I I sort of got an early interest in it in my undergraduate studies. My undergraduate thesis ended up being on uh, Florentine and Bolognese criminal courts, the development of justice uh, and and punishment systems in early modern Florence and Bologna. And then in my MA, I went out to Dalhousie University in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and worked with Greg Hanlon there on an MA project on petitioning in the 17th century in Italy. So I had sort of done these undergraduate and and early graduate projects on uh, institutions and bureaucracies around crime, um, sort of looking at justice as a a series of institutions. Um, And that got me wanting to sort of delve more into... Uh, the experience of individuals delve more into the sort of behavior that these institutions were um, attempting to sort of moderate or monitor or punish or uh, you know, reduce, et cetera, et cetera. So I uh, sort of started thinking, well, maybe I want to study the actual crime itself instead of the systems around it. Um, homicide is historically the easiest crime to study uh, in, in, in a way, that it's the most visible in the record. We talk a lot in the history of crime about the, the, the black figure of unreported or unknown crimes, particularly in things like robberies or domestic violence uh, or assaults, just things that don't make it into the cr- historical record, that don't make it into the, the criminal justice system, whatever that looks like. Um, with homicide, there there's usually a body. I mean, there's always a body Uh, and there is often people who are aggrieved by that body. Uh, It comes to the attention of authorities. It comes to the attention of those who keep the records. So homicide gives you this access into a much bigger window of of what crime or violence in a society actually looks like because you have a pretty good sense that what you're seeing is is more or less the accurate historical picture when you say, I mean, I've counted up a hundred homicides here, you can, there might be one or two that have gone unnoticed, but you're, you're not talking about, well, I'm missing half the records or something sure. like that. Right. Um, so, uh, so, so violence sort of has this outsized place in his in historic societies compared to our own, which sort of brought me into the behavior itself, right? It's in in early modern Italy, at least, it's kind of a, a part of the understood social repertoire that you know, violence is going to be part of your life at some point. And so I wanted to understand how that kind of shapes people's experience of ordinary life and to try to better understand, you know, what civil society can look like under those circumstances when there's a much more uh, acceptable place for violence in society than than we have in our own today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the the, mm-hmm. the academic uh, reasons that brought me into homicide as as a focus for this interest Um, on a personal note like I'm terrible at violence I think I maybe got in one sort of schoolyard fight when I was a you know grade six or something and and I didn't win Um, and I'm sort of fascinated by people who seem to have this either either natural or even practiced skill at um at what we think of as a as a really aberrant set of behaviors but which in historical settings they have have in many cases been a real uh sort of benefit to be good at at violence mm-hmm. so that's that's sort of the the the, yeah. the the approach that brought me into studying homicide as, as an academic topic
0: No, i mean in this point about violence it's very interesting right um there's a there's a whole group of people whose prowess of violence allows them power mm-hmm. which is so, but so interesting when we think of a criminal class, it doesn't tend to be our upper class.
1: Well, um, the, the interesting part of that is that uh, that power can be either you know extreme, right? You can win power over states through violence, or it can be really petty, right? I mean, so many of the characters in my novel are these these kind of street urchins. are pretty good at fighting and they get attached to a family uh they get attached to an employer who needs someone who's good at violence Mm -hmm. and and they get themselves a job they get themselves a uniform they get themselves a place to sleep and they they get this this very petty social power but it's it's more power than they would have had otherwise yeah
0: yeah absolutely i mean i suppose we can still see that happening that last bit anyway
1: um
0: yeah. So my other question, though, uh, is why Bologna?
1: Why Bologna?
0: So many of us work in Venice. There's a big group in Florence. Why Bologna?
1: Bologna is not quite as visited as as Florence, Venice, Rome by by Anglo-American historians. Uh, but it's kind of this undiscovered gem. And I might be shooting myself in the foot by giving it away here. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful city to work in. It has a vibrant uh, intellectual life with the university there. Um, the archive itself is uh freely accessible with you know uh eight thirty to seven p.m. days Monday to Friday and then you know eight thirty to, to one o'clock on Saturdays. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight thirty to seven PM. Um just just a fantastically accessible archive in a way that I've I've never experienced anywhere else. Um I mean this is all this 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 probably will change <laughs> soon. Enough with, with with financial crises, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but it's it's a fantastic archive to work in. The Archivio di Stato di Bologna. There's also the um, Old Papal Library, the arch, uh, the Archiginnasio um, there, which has a also a wonderful manuscript section. Um, it's it's a very pleasant city to be an archival historian, um, and so uh, I was drawn there by both the the sort of uh, rich history of the place, but also the working environment. There comes a point when, um, you know, on, on a study of of homicide as a topic, it could have been done in a variety of cities, right? The, but but Bologna turned out to be probably the best place in Italy to do a kind of long term archival study of criminal behavior, um, and it just just happened to be that it's also a uh, a richly enjoyable city um, with fantastic food. And, uh, so some really wonderful sites to see situated in, you know, it's, it's easily accessible from, um, the other, you know, the other great parts of Italy. So, um, it's, 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 a wonderful place. And while I encourage people to visit there, I, uh, I would also recommend if anyone is, is you know, looking for a city to study in Italy that, that Bologna is a wonderful place to do it, but uh, don't, don't overcrowd my archive. Yeah,
0: sure. <laughs> yeah, as a Venetian historian, I like, and I know what that feels like.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, also, like, let's be reasonable. The best food in Italy,
1: right? <laughs> Disagreed. Uh, oh, uh, oh. Very good food, very oh, good food, favorite. but the best food in Italy, and here again, I'm going to give away a secret, the best food in Italy is in Parma and then Modena. Oh uh, okay. yeah. mm,
0: i wouldn't maybe Ravenna. Ah,
1: okay i believe it's it.
0: very good but abola yep. is my favorite pizza in the world mm-hmm. it's just it's unbelievable when i'm yeah. at Bologna,
1: I eat really sleazy i go to this place called nicolo's pizzeria uh you know it's for six euro. you get this 18 inch pizza sort of thing and it's it's uh it's, it's not the classiest place but it is delicious
0: that sounds um, fabulous. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, by myself,
1: uh, right? So I bring I bring my Kindle over to the the restaurant and eat a huge <laughs> pizza and then stagger home to fall asleep. Um, that sounds
0: brilliant. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. We're yeah, we're getting a little off topic, but
1: <laughs> I'll talk about Bolinese food for as long yeah, as I can.
0: Forever. And mm-hmm. we're possibly like trying to convince people to study early modern Italy, which is a field that's not getting the love it used to. Well,
1: you see sadly. the lasagna in the records still. So every yeah. now and then I've seen a homicide case that starts with the poison lasagna or the the incorrectly made lasagna.
0: I have seen this. I found a witchcraft trial. A woman put something in her lasagna yeah? to try to get her lover to stay with yeah, her. It happens. Yeah. 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 He, he, and I'm quoting here through the lasagna out the window and she out of his house. Ouch. Um, yeah, it was rough. Yeah. All right. Um, so your, uh, your historiography reads as well as these things possibly can. It was actually quite enjoyable. And oh, you situate you. your work. I cut <laughs> about 30
1: pages of it.
0: <laughs> um it's, best. it's it, i mean it's it is just des- it's definitely necessary and often an evil but mm-hmm. um you did a great job situating your work in the intersection of very some very specific discussions and then some broader questions about you know the the flow of western civilization mm-hmm. um so i just would like to know what you think you your greatest contribution to our field is what do you think you do here
1: i think what i do is i've tried to use some uh, long-term reliable evidence to mount a um, challenge to what has become the sort of dominant way of thinking about european violence at least which is that uh, that civilizing process theory that I, I spend a lot of time on in the book um it's really over the past oh geez 25 30 years even closer to 40 years largely through the work of peter spierenberg uh, and and people who have been influenced by his work it's become very much a dominant way of thinking about at least European patterns of of, of uh, not just violence but but state and and social development um, it has focused our attention on long-term processes uh, and on sort of collections of um, large-scale numerical quantitative evidence without necessarily drawing us into the qualitative uh, sort of momentary episodes that I think really make my study um, sort of a rich challenge to that. What I've tried to do in this book is say, look, this long-term process is great and it's probably true you know if we look at the numbers that over the past 500 years uh there are fewer homicides now than there were in 1500 but by no means is that a uh, sure thing by no means is that a teleological process and by no means is that even a continuous process and so i've tried to marshal a significant body of evidence to say here's here's you know, a moment in time, and I say a moment in time, I mean an entire century uh, where that process has been um, interrupted, has been reversed uh, and, and has to be kind of kickstarted again. And I've done that by drawing in these sort of other major processual uh, school of my historiography, which is um, this much more American way of thinking about uh, violence. Um, Influenced primarily by Randolph Roth, uh, his sort of opus work on American homicide, which is to look rather than at uh, state action and centralization as driving these long term processes. But rather looking at it sort of kind of from the bottom up of how do people trust and respond to state action, institutional strength, uh, legitimacy of institutions um, to either uh, to, to have much more sort of short term um analyses of of the place of violence in a given society so i tried to take this um, perspective of well how do people experience state power and institutional action uh and respond to it either by using violence or abjuring violence Um, and i've taken this sort of large body of italian Uh, criminal evidence, um, a larger collection of of Italian homicide trials than have been collected before uh, and used it to put together this picture that says, no, we shouldn't be thinking about this in terms of a long-term decline of homicide brought about by state action. We should rather be thinking about this in terms of the strength of Italian civil society uh, at various points in time the strength of Italian uh, social, political, judicial institutions at various points in time, and how those institutions have been able to meet the needs of or fail to meet the needs of um, local populations, elite populations, ordinary populations, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, I think my big contribution to this historiography uh, is to say that we are way better off looking at moments in time. Um, and again, that moment might be a whole century, uh, then we are talking about a a centuries-long process that you know we're sort of apparently at the end of, even though who knows where it's going to go next year. Um, though what we should be concentrating on is 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 what happens uh in the meantime, what happens um in in a 30-year period, what happens in a hundred-year period rather than what's happened over the past six centuries. Um, and if we do that, if we look at places where that pattern breaks, we start to see really interesting histories uh, happening, such as what I've uncovered in Bologna, this hitherto sort of unnoticed revival of elite factional violence that really culminates in, in what is best described as a civil war in the middle of the 17th century, um, which if you weren't, you know, if you weren't looking at the homicide records, you wouldn't see this because it's not noted as a you know official civil war in the chronicle evidence but when you look at who's being killed and in what kind of numbers and in what kind of circumstances you start seeing that there's there's factional violence re-emerging that's directed not just you know not just between different Bolognese factions but actually challenging the legitimacy of um, papal authority over Bologna as well.
0: Sure I, I mean in some points right now you've just answered kind of my next question right because in your introduction you you lay out these statistics, demonstrating this extremely violent, extremely homicidal um, points across the century, and uh, and I know the, the answer to this question is too big for a podcast. It is, in fact, a book. <laughs> but but uh, why does this happen? What's what's the cause of the explosion of the violence here? Shh.
1: So there's, I mean, and here I, I uh, yeah, what I also just have just meant to tell you is that there's kind of two arguments going on, right? There's the local argument, the Bolognese argument, and then there's then there's the universal argument, the 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 social trust argument. Um, in Bologna, I mean, the the 17th century kind of starts on this high note, right? We're coming off what is uh, traditionally thought of as the High Renaissance. The, in the 16th century, the the Italian states have kind of settled into these ducal absolutist um situations where where local elites have been you know pacified into a sort of service nobility uh Castile, um you know the the, the Castigliones courtiers are are making up our um are making up the local sort of political elites uh the the, the you know the, the the Spanish peace has descended upon Italy etc cetera, etc cetera. we tend to think of you know the the, the dawn of the 17th century as, as coming off this sort of productive time in Italian history. Um, but then we see this, this sort of real, um, decline in the fortunes of, of North Italy, at least in the, in the 1610s and twenties, there's a series of, uh, poor harvests, um, related in part to, to sort of the ongoing issues of, uh, of climate change in, in what's known as the little ice age. So food insecurity is a real problem. Um, the participation of Italy in this much broader global economy, much, you know, a sort of European and global economy has sort of really damaged local industries in particular, the the, the traditional textile industry, which is very important in Bologna in, in the late medieval and early modern period. Um, so there's, there's a, there's, there's economic crises as well as food insecurity uh, in the 1620s, the 30 years war comes to Italy. There are, uh Spanish and French and German armies kind of roaming through the Lombard Plain and the Po Valley. There are a couple battles fought, uh, in, in, in North Italy, um, in the late 1620s. So you have all these soldiers around. Um, and then in 1630, this all kind of comes to a head when, when there's a serious episode of bubonic plague, um, and this particular episode of bubonic plague for North Italy is probably the very worst one uh, of, the, of the, you know, eight centuries in which bubonic plague sort of roams across Europe. Um, in places like, well, in Venice, uh, approximately half of the population dies um in Parma, about half of the population dies. In uh in, in Padova, I think it might be sixty percent of the population. I don't have the the numbers offhand in front of me, but it's it's these massive mortality numbers. Right, yeah, um Just in,
0: empty house after empty house. Exactly. Left, yeah.
1: And Bologna gets off comparatively easy with a mere, you know, twenty-five percent of the population mm-hmm. succumbing to um the to the plague, and that's that's both in the rural and urban context. and this kind of brings everything to a head because this is not Northern Italy's first experience with plague, right? I mean, uh, they've been dealing with it for three hundred years, and they think that they know how to deal with plague, right? They have a well-oiled machine of quarantine. Um, you know, they lock the gates against. Uh, commercial goods coming from different cities against livestock being transported in and out from the, from the countryside into the city. They try and they try you know, these cities have walls. So theoretically they are, they are closable. Um, And they try to, you know, ward off plague through this um, set of protocols that have been developed over time, closing off the city. They have health magistracies who go around the city, inspecting people's uh, domiciles, you know, looking for, um, cesspools you know filthy wells uh all the all the all the sort of warning signs that according to their understanding of disease theory um would 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 warn them against outbreaks of plague and they they put this fairly harsh regime in place of quarantine of curfew um shutting the city down you know of of a a lockdown of encouraging physical distancing uh (laughs) To try and bring this plague under control, um, and despite this, despite you know locking uh, the in Bologna, you know, the, the curfew is a twenty-four hour curfew on women. They're supposed to stay inside all day long. Um, it's you know a, a severe restriction on what kinds of economic activities can be performed in the marketplace. Uh, the, the 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 butcher's district is cleared out. Um, all of these, you know, sort of vital economic lifelines in the city are, are severely curtailed. People chafe against it, obviously. People break curfew. People break quarantine. Um, people fake the sort of, um, they call them fede di sanità, the, the health guarantee, right? The little card you carry around that says, I don't have plague, or at least I didn't have <laughs> plague when I left my city. Um, people fake those. That there's, there's, there's all these ways that people get around these things. And despite all the measures put in place by this state, um, I mean, 25% of the local population dies in, in Bologna, um, 50% of the local population dies in Venice, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's this, this kind of crashing realization that these states can't actually help us, um, that the, the, the institutions who have seized a great deal of power in this moment, who have locked us in our homes for months at a time, um, have not... Prevented the deaths of thousands. Um, so why are we why are we trusting in these institutions to keep us safe? Why are we uh, maintaining civil society on their terms? Um, so we have this this disappearance of of trust in the legitimacy of political and social institutions. Um, at the same time, as that population you know has this this traumatic. Uh, decrease in numbers. There's there's a sort of socioeconomic reckoning that happens, as as we've seen in other places and times following severe plagues. Right, that the have-nots say, well, being rich didn't prevent the haves from dying. Like, what what is the what is the basis for these socioeconomic hierarchies that are, uh, under which I am a have-not, uh, and and why shouldn't I be scrambling in the wake of this to try to get my hands? on some more resources, some more land, uh, trying to you know, improve my station in the, in, in the wake of this plague. So we see this kind of um, world turned upside down situation in which people kind of retreat into uh, their kin groups, They retreat into self-help. We start seeing um, the growth of resource, Based homicides, people scrambling for for food, money, land. Uh, we start seeing the revival of sort of vendetta and revenge violence, uh, as as people say. Well, the the, the institutions of the state aren't going to help me resolve these conflicts, um, and and so this this plague kind of just is the the final nail in the coffin of these major crises that have dogged. North Italian society through the through the early decades of the 17th century, and that's when we start to see this really major increase uh, in, in in homicide rates, um, and and also a qualitative shift in what those homicides look like. We start seeing more deliberately factional. Violence. We start seeing more resource-based violence. We start seeing the stability of civil society, which at, at normal times supports or, or sustains a, a, you know, a degree of violence without without really cracking at the seams. We start seeing the sorts of violence that indicate that civil society is really kind of falling apart. That the social trust that we would expect to see in a in a functional civil society has has kind of fallen apart. Um, so that's yeah. that's sort of a local argument. Uh, if if what I've already given you is the sort of big universal argument behind it, right? And and Bologna makes a really good example of of that universal argument that um, violence is is a responsive behavior to the legitimacy of and and social trust in. Uh, the institutions that sustain civil society, whether those are judicial institutions, whether those are political institutions, whether those are, are social sort of informal institutions.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you, you're able to make these really kind of sweeping points with um, your sources, which are... Mm-hmm. Um, really atomized. Um, and I think this might be a good time to talk about how you get there. How do you get to these points? Tell me about your primary sources. And for our listeners who haven't spent time in the archives, tell us uh tell them a little bit what, what, what you're looking at, like how, how you come about this, tell them how, how we do our craft.
1: So the, um, that's a good question. That's, (laughs) that's a very good question. So the bulk of what I do as a historian, um, at least for this project, the bulk of what I did was read historical murder trials. Um, it was, it was a bit of a depressing project as you can imagine. Uh, but the, um, The record of violence in Bologna is largely conserved in the Archivio di Stato di Bologna, the state archive, in the records of a really sort of frighteningly powerful criminal court known as the Tribunale del Torone, the Tribunal of the Great Tower, which emerges as an arm of papal power in the 16th century, largely uh, in order to wrest criminal jurisdiction away from uh, local feudal elites. Um, and in many ways, this court does so by having a um, meticulous bureaucracy, uh, right? It's, 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 got, uh, it's got notaries trained at the university in Bologna and trained uh, at the university in Padova um, who form these sort of, uh, if the pen is mightier than the sword, then these guys have the pens. Um, And they are they are fearsome notaries in terms of the records that they are keeping of judicial activity. So this court emerges, the the earliest records of it are around 1525, uh, when the early 16th century popes are really struggling to sort of um, oust local elites from criminal jurisdiction. Uh, By the 1550s, this court, the Torone, is firmly established. And by the 1570s, its records are remarkable for their uh, comprehensiveness and for their complexity. And so, I'm reading I'm reading homicide trials, and these trials frequently start um, with a, a denunciation or a report by either by um, an aggrieved party or by a local judicial official, sort of a cop known as a Spiro or a Bargello uh, who, who who writes a report to the court, says um, someone's been killed. Uh, Giovanni has killed Marcello, um, etc. Right? The, and they, they they give a little overview of the situation, so this is always nice when you're starting to read a trial, but the very first pages are someone saying here's what I heard happened. Um, there you know, there I found, all of these.
0: Hmm?
1: Yeah. yeah I've got all of these. Exactly right. Here's here's the major narrative that that you're about to read through and and that you're about to complicate. Uh, following this sort of initial denunciation, the court determines whether or not to investigate, dispatches a judge or a notary or both. Um, when they get to the scene of the crime, there's a section of the of the documents which is a uh, body inspections where they do basically an on-site autopsy, not not like a forensic autopsy, but a uh, an inspection of the corpse. When they say and this is great material history, right? They describe, um, they describe a corpse, age, mm-hmm. sex, uh, hair color, whether they have a beard, whether they have a mustache, what they're wearing, uh, what's in their pockets, um, what kind of wounds they have, whether those wounds are deemed to have been fatal. Um, and these are always performed either by, um, usually by a physician uh, or a barber or surgeon who's on site, and then two uh, witnesses who know the deceased, so they can sort of you have this sort of um. Here's the medical side of it. This this is a body that was killed by someone. This wound did the deed, and then you have two people who will say, uh, "I I know who that person is," um, and then you have a notary who will say, "And this this qualifies as a as a homicide." So you have sort of the social, medical, and legal perspectives um, brought into this body inspection. If the body inspection indeed points to a homicide, then the, the, the criminal court, the notary and the judge will begin, um, they'll open an investigation. Um, and all of this is recorded on site. You have these, these reams of paper uh, you know, com- compiled into, into codex style books. Um, I sometimes imagine these notaries sort of traveling around with just thick sheaves of pages. Some of it's done on site, some of it's uh, copied into, into investigation books later. Um, with the body inspections complete, we move on to investigations, and these investigations are typically uh, witness interrogations. So the notary will say, okay, say we've got this body, they will call, um, they'll speak to his friends, and I say his because it's usually a his. Uh, they'll speak to um, family, they'll speak to local uh, notables, you know, the local blacksmith, people who see everything. Um, they frequently have a pretty good idea of, of who the culprit is. Uh, they will speak to, if that person's in custody, they will interrogate that person. Um, more often than not, that person has fled. Um, in which case they will, they will organize a search party and try to find them. Um, And then, uh, depending on, you know, the nature of the investigation, the complexity of it, we'll have anywhere from, you know, three to 50 witnesses called in a typical homicide trial. Um, these can, these can last anywhere from, you know, five pages of handwritten documentation to the, to, to over a thousand, depending on the complexity of the trial and the number of witnesses called, um. With all the evidence from witness interrogations collected, the judge makes a preliminary charge. Um, citations are issued for the the accused to appear uh, to mount a defense, with or without a lawyer. Usually, without a lawyer. Um, typically, uh, a typically a killer does not appear um, because you know you're handing yourself over to an authority that will, that will probably level a sentence of death against you. Um, in absentia, you are sentenced uh, more often than not. That sentence beca- is, is uh, written out as sort of exile on pain of death. Um, if you do show up, you'll receive your, your death sentence. Sometimes it's exile on pain of galley slavery, going to row papal galleys in the Mediterranean fighting pirates. Um, which is a, for fun- a very long time. Oh, it's a it's functional a death, sentence, death sentence right I mean if you're sentenced for 10 years galley slavery that's uh, that's 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 a functional death sentence yeah. um, sometimes you would be sentenced to working in the salt mines uh, sometimes you would be sentenced to to prison terms um, but but the typical way that a homicide trial ends is with a sentence of exile on pain of death um, or pain of galley slavery um, and that's that's just sort of a a recognition of, of, of the actual situation because what's happened in the meantime is that the killer has fled to the next state over, right? One of the things about uh, Bologna's sort of fracturing into these city-states across North Italy, sorry, not Bologna's, Italy's fracturing into these city-states um, is that in order to escape a criminal jurisdiction from Bologna, you just have to cross the river over into Modenese territory, um, and then there's at least a long, a long extradition process that gives you some time to breathe. In that time to breathe, uh, the notaries of the court are um, leaning heavily on uh, the victim's family to reach out and negotiate a peace accord uh, with the killer with the eye to um, preventing a cycle of revenge violence from breaking out. Uh, and, and then if that peace accord uh, is successfully negotiated. A pardon is granted. There's often a sort of kind of restraining order. You'll stay away from this family for five years, uh, but otherwise you could come back to your town. Um, and, and what we're not going to have is is the sort of revenge violence that really disrupts the stability of local society. And all of this in Bologna, part of what makes Bologna such a rich archival place to work, all of this is conserved in in one booklet. Um, And that's, that's also, you know, what makes Bologna great. If you go to somewhere like Florence to study criminal records, you have the denunciations in one folder, you have the trials in another folder, you have the sentences in another folder, and you have the pardons in another folder. In Bologna, they're all in one book. Um,
0: well, sir, it's, some it's, of those could have been lost or whatnot. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's very nice.
1: it's, Yeah, exactly. It makes it a really comprehensive criminal archive. Um, and it makes it, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's easy to read through, but it's, it's relatively straightforward to track down. I mean, I ended up with something like 700 odd trials. Um, when, you're, when you're trying to vacuum up that amount of data, having it easily accessible um, and, and comprehensively organized is really important. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of my primary sources are these sort of booklets of handwritten. Um, the bulk of the material is witness interrogations. And, uh, for, for our listeners, I'll give you a sense of what this actually looks like because you get a real sense of, um, how hard the notaries behind the system actually work. Sometimes you'll have 15 witnesses interviewed in a day Mm -hmm. and, you know, the day will start on a fresh page. Uh, in the booklet, and our notary has this sort of very neat, um, you know, sort of notarial hand. His ink is running smoothly. His quill is sharp, uh, and the questioning begins. And the questions are often very formulaic. Uh, a judge or a notary is asking, "Okay, tell us your name. Who are you? How do you know the victim? Can you tell us what happened?" And then follow-up questions. Um, you know, if someone says, "Well, I saw," you know, I, I know that uh giovanni killed marcello okay well why did he do it they were arguing over uh, you know they were arguing over whose uh, the boundaries of their fields okay do you know how long those boundaries have been established et cetera? Et cetera. we have these sort of series of questions that lead into in the follow-up questions um as 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 an interrogation generally would and so Maybe maybe each witness takes up three pages. You've got fifteen pages or fifteen witnesses in a in a day. Maybe by the end of the day, the the poor notary's hand uh, you can just see the cramps um, so in tired. his handwriting. Right, it's just become this kind of chicken scratch. His quill is dull. Uh, the ink is sort of all over the place. It becomes much um, less legible. Uh, and these these witness interrogations are are a fantastic. Insight into daily life of ordinary people, because often what they're doing is they're telling stories. Um, what were you doing that day? Right? Here's here. How do you know this happened? Well, I was on my way to visit my sister-in-law. Uh, we were going to make the pasta for that week's, you know, for the for the feast day coming up, um, et cetera, et cetera. I was off to I was off to the fields to look after. Uh, the beasts, because, you know, that's my job, et cetera, et cetera. I was working on a roof repairing thatch. And when I saw this, um, you get these, these very mundane, ordinary stories, um, which are interrupted by acts of, of fatal violence. Uh, so, so the, and and all of this is written down um, about as close to word for word as you can imagine. So these, Absolutely. these noters yeah. are working fearsomely hard and, and, there's always this ongoing question of well well, can you trust the notary can you can you actually sort of expect that what you're reading is is an accurate reflection of, of what's being said here and then when you read these mm-hmm. when you read the mundanity of of much of this testimony, you sort of say, yeah, they're writing down what they're being told You um, know and why would
0: there well, I think there are other little clues as well just to how um how how handy they they are how how careful they are I've found cases where they bring someone in and they're like, "So do you know why you're here today?" and mm-hmm. they say "No I do not know, and I cannot imagine exactly and, uh, you know, <laughs> non, non posso yeah. um and then it well the some there is the uh the inquisitor starts asking them questions and then they realize that they have the wrong guy. They've yeah. got like Piero who lives in this calle and they wanted Piero who lives over on the other calle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, we'll let you go. And that's still in the record, mm-hmm. which is, you know, further to your point that this is really, you're getting a blow by blow. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really important though, to point out, I think when people imagine, you know, just like what early modern justice looks like it's big and it's, it's epic and it's exciting, and what it is, in fact, is fearsome bureaucracy. Hundred percent. You just you get these there are armies, these
1: merciless penants,
0: merciless pens, <laughs> and armies of bureaucrats yeah. and pounds of paper yeah. that are actually what what controls or mandates or you know how you negotiate. When you position.
1: see the shelves, right? When you go into the back room of the archive and you see just it just just. Oh, it's, it's kilometers of shelves,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? When you, when you stack up all, all of the records of, of, you know, even it. So, so I think it's in a year of uh, criminal records um, in Bologna, there's anywhere, excuse me, there's anywhere between, let's see the biggest year. I think I had 300 case books, each about 300 folios, mm-hmm. right? There's just, there's just a massive amount of paperwork, but that is uh, generated by this, by this meticulous, um, incredibly annoying bureaucracy, right? Oh these, these, these notaries must be just the least fun in the world. Um, and it's, it's boring work too, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of writing, 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 and then they have these breaks, right? And what do they do in their, in their break time? They draw cartoons, uh, That's right? right? They, 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 color in the margins, um, they, they draw funny little pictures, and, or they, they write yeah. little poems. Or, um, it's, no, it's, in
0: their spare time, they write magic charms or yeah, something, exactly, which they might right. get it later. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, 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 so seem, it seems unbearable. But then when you think about what the, their other options are, maybe it's all right.
1: But yeah. as a historian, right? I mean, well, this is why people study Italy, is that mm-hmm. this, this notarial culture is so um, embedded into uh, statehood in Mm -hmm. in in the italian cities that they've been that they're just brutal record keepers (laughs) just just Um, records of every little thing every word said every dollar or every you know scudo passed over um just every little thing
0: yeah the sounds that are included in the uh interrogation it's really interesting.
1: Oh yeah. Um, well, the other the other part I should add about what these sources look like is that um, they reflect they, they reflect real actions, right? And, and so you know the notaries are they're writing down not just the the responses to questions but also the behaviors of the people, right? And so you have to also uh, the elephant in the room of these records is torture, right? That right. Um, not just torture of, of, of accused, um, but but torture of, of witnesses who have you know nothing to do with it really. Um, if, if the court doesn't think that they trust a witness, they can apply torture there. Um, there's a growing discomfort with that in the early modern period. A lot of jurists recognize that torture isn't really effective at, at accessing truth, um, but the notaries are, are still there writing it down, right? And uh, I mean, probably the hardest thing I ever read in the archive um, was just a three-page transcription of screams. Oh God! It was it was awful, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> Mother yeah. Mary, please make this stop. Help, Jesus, help! Right? I just, just, yeah. and and the notary, the notary, sitting there Mother doing the recording, yeah, keeping an yeah. accurate record of this this torture transcript. That was literally it was just screams. Um, so, so that's the you know when, when we're talking about how great these records are, we also have to recognize that this is a this is a brutal system too. Um,
0: Absolutely, not it's, probably as bad as most people think. No. There is a process, but... the tor-
1: and the torture is ordinary. Um, mm-hmm. It's we're, we're not talking about uh, you know burning people's feet and stuff like that. It's 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 again it's a bureaucratic kind of torture. Um, for for listeners right. not familiar with early modern torture, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's very standard. It's called the strappado in North Italy, and it is a it's a rope. Tor- torture where they they tie your hands behind your back Um, they attach a rope on a pulley to that hand tie and and they lift you off the ground Um, it it dislocates your shoulders it doesn't do any permanent damage which is the sort of legal standard of a of, of, of acceptable torture um you know that that you you will heal from it um and uh, there's a series of exceptions for people who who can't be tortured. I often see people in the record. They bring in their doctor's note. Right, <laughs> I've got I've got a bad back. Here's my physician's note saying I can't be tortured because I, I have a herniated disc. Um, you know, it will cause permanent damage if you torture me, so you can't do it. Um, or I'm pregnant, so you can't torture me yet. Um, right, all these there's there's all these uh, you know general legal literacy about about, torture, about, about participation in this system that the people have. Um, so it's, a it's, 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 kind of an oppressive system of, of, you know, state justice interrogating ordinary people, but there's also this widespread legal literacy of how to work in that system that, uh, that we see emerging from these, these sources where people are, you can tell they're playing the system, right? Um, in many ways, they know what questions they're going to be asked, and they know how to answer them. And this becomes very true. So when you're out in, when a notary has been called out to the countryside, there's this little village where uh, a stranger has showed up on market day selling something in the market square. He gets into a fight with a local. The local knife's him. Um, you know, so so this 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 outsider comes into town and ends up killed, uh, and then and then you know the local boy who's done the killing takes off um you know he he goes he goes running and there's this process that you know is is off the page but you can see the traces of it of the village getting together and saying okay what do we tell the court Mm -hmm. um you know what's our story here uh and then then you you know the notary shows up because they have to report the body you know so the, the the local um sort of bailiff figure has to report the body into the court the notary shows up um and he says, "Okay, well, where's the killer?" And everyone says, "Oh, I don't know." Uh, and and they say, "Well, let's go find him." And say, "Oh, we last saw him. He was heading. He crossed the river over that way into Modena, or he crossed the mountain. He crossed into the mountain passes, heading towards Florence. We'll never find him." Um, okay, sit down. What happened here? And you start seeing. You know, the answers are so rehearsed that they've they've gotten together and said, "What's the story? Uh, what happened here? How do we how do we explain this in a way that will protect local interests and will keep the court?" Happy while also keeping them out of our hair as much as possible, while ensuring that as few of us get tortured as possible.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's part of a a much broader debate about the way government works Mm -hmm. and the way, you know, the way that these kind of mechanisms work and how there's this negotiation of power being exercised from above and below. Um, which we really don't have time for.
1: So no, that's far. fair. That's a real, that's a much bigger question.
0: That's it's a big um, question. Yeah,
1: but, a- but I mean, this this is, I, I will say one thing about that, which is that you know when you look at the amount of. Um, not power, but the amount of leeway that ordinary people uh, have in their, in their relationships with, with, with authorities, you start seeing that in early modern, I don't know if you agree with this at all. I think the emperor has no clothes. I mean, Venice is, Venice is a particular place. um, But, but the, the, the ducal states of North Italy, I mean, the, the the state is, is powerless in so many ways Um, that kinship is still much more important Uh, that community is still much more powerful in, in shaping people's lives and shaping people's experiences.
0: Sure. And it's this kind of negotiation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Especially, I mean, with Venice, the papacy is particularly neutered, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's absolutely, there's this space, uh, the attempts to, and this narrative, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but this narrative that the 17th century in particular is about the centralization of power and the growing authoritarianism, and I perhaps that applies in a place I don't understand, you know, France. Um,
1: but it's not true in Italy. I mean, there's attempts at that, not. but but it's still very much these, these much older structures uh, yeah. of, of community loyalty, of kinship loyalty that... You know, even if at, at a given moment, right? I mean, the the elites of Bologna said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna join this papal senate, right? We're gonna get in that papal senate, but they're using it to advance their own interests, they're yeah. using it to build family power, uh, they're using it to sort of uh leapfrog from the the heights of Bolognese uh social power to join this broader network of Italian elite families and, and get into Rome, right? Or get into France. uh mm-hmm. that that you know statehood and and state politics are are an avenue for these elite families to uh to advance their family interests rather than you know they're not working for the good of the centralized state no no
0: yeah Yeah, absolutely
1: completely agree with you there cool um
0: Oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. We've, solved one of We've solved one of those problems. Yeah. That's good. No one, no one needs to write any more books about that, guys. We got it.
1: Done. Um, state done. state is right. out. I said that at the AHA. <laughs> I was at the AHA in January and ended up on this panel about state power somehow. And I sort of started my paper and said, I didn't think this was about state power. I didn't want to talk about state power. Uh, cause, cause I, good. Uh, yeah.
0: Went well. Um. Uh, back when we got to see other people. Those were the I remember days. Those days.
1: Yeah. Well, the last conference I'll ever go to was AHA in New York.
0: <laughs> oh, that can't be true. I hope not. Um, God, it's not. It's nobody's favorite, is it? No.
1: Um, no, it's a strange time. <laughs> but oh, I take yeah. solace in knowing that we're not the first people to ever go through a plague. Right? This uh the world has continued in many plagues before. We will. We will yeah. There will be something <laughs> on the far side eventually.
0: Yeah. We'll get out of it. Maybe we'll get a good church out of this or something, as we did in Venice. Ooh,
1: um, well, so yeah. so do you know this um, uh, this 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 town in Germany Oberammergau, I think it's called, where there's a passion play that was started in in the 1630 plague, um, mm-hmm. and this this small town in in Bavaria uh, said, okay, we're going to put on this passion play, and they made a they made a voto um, that if you know if the passion play um broke the plague they would uh put it on every 10 years in perpetuity um and lo and behold they put on this passion plague in october uh and you know they didn't have any more cases of plague anymore because you know plague subsides in the in the late fall um and so every 10 years since 1630 ish uh this this town has put on this passion play um and and you know it's it's gone on for 400 years the only times it's ever been delayed uh was once in world war uh one um and and once in um i think the like 1980s pandemic uh i had tickets uh my wife and i were going to go this year it was it was supposed to happen this year yeah we were we were going to go see this this famous passion play and it's been delayed for the third time in its 400 year history
0: that's astounding.
1: I sort of thought, well, aren't, aren't you going to put the damn passion play on, like, break the play, guys?
0: <laughs> like seriously, we can we get some help here? So I hope
1: that they've um, at least performed it you know in private for the town.
0: I but, hope so as yeah. well. Yeah. I, which really connects us to kind of uh, I like that that moment to connect us to this broader our broader history that we're part of. Um, ok. You know, we have inadvertently kind of talked about most of the things I wanted to talk to in this very far ranging uh, discussion. So I think we should just, uh, and in the interest of, of our listeners time, we should kind of wrap this up. Okey-doke. Um, but so, um, okay. You know what? Um, one of the things that, uh, you, you say, um, like the plague, let's, let's talk about the the plague in the middle of this, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, um, that you kind of point out that the plague destabilizes, and if physically, metaphorically, the plague destabilizes, and then the violence, the homicide that comes as a response, reestablishes? Um, no. Okay, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Uh, that's, that's not really what I... No. Oh, I hope I didn't say that. No,
0: no, no. Uh, well,
1: what, I, what I mean is that... You're um, always reaching. So that's one of my questions. The violence that comes after kind of forces the reestablishment. Okay. Right? That yeah. there's this... Um, and if you look at... This might be a particularly Balinese process as well, but... Um, because of its, you know, extremely fractious, factional elite history that the, the the elites of Bologna have, you know, for for since the founding of the communes have been um, notoriously violent in their politics, um, and that doesn't just disappear uh, in the early 16th century when when Julius II sort of officially reintegrates Bologna into the into the papal state as as a as a practical matter, not just a a sort of nominal matter, Um, it seems to me that there's this sort of generational process where um, each new generation of elites has to sort of renegotiate, reestablish the terms under which they're going to participate in this broader papal state project. Um, And so you see kind of Almost every 30 years, looking at at Bolognese history, um, you see this kind of uh, crumbling and then a reestablishment, right? You see sort of Senate participation falls off and then the Pope offers, uh, well, okay, I'll give a whole bunch of land grants uh, in the 1560s um, to to various families that were previously oligarchic supporters. Um, And okay, now that they've got these big land holdings in the countryside, they're going to come back into the fold. Um, and there's these sort of back and forths, kind of every generation, where the Balinese elites say, OK, we're going to we're going to be a part of this papal state project. And the, the the fallout after the 1630 plague is another of those moments. And it takes a long time um, okay. because. The 1630 plague, and here I'm going to get, you know, this is something I I try not to get into too much in the book because I'm not like 100% sure that I have the evidence for this. Um, But what I see happening, the 1630 plague is one of the, you know, there's two kinds of plagues, right? There's the one that kills the um, the adult generation, kills the healthy adult generation, and then there's one that kills the old and the young. Um, The 1630 kills the the healthy adult generation. Um, So you have this whole generation of elites who are children around 1630, who grow up without fathers Mm -hmm. Uh, there. And, and by the time those um, so they grow up without what would become the mediating influences of their youth and early adulthood, right. By the, you know, so, so that these say 30 year old to 40 year old, uh, fathers are gone as their sons are going from being five to 25, five to 35. So we don't have a generation of Balinese elites who are sort of over their violent youth. Um, in the wake of this plague, these, the, 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 the young generation of Balinese elites are growing up without their fathers there to say, here's how you work in this political system. Uh, here's how you re-establish stability around here. So they just keep at it. They don't have that mediating influence of their fathers who are becoming old men who are tired of violence. Um, and so it continues for another thirty years. They return to the factional politics. They return to the vendetta. They return to revenge. They return to anti-papal agitation. They kill judges. They kill notaries. They kill spiri. Um, And it takes 30 years for that to sort of calm down until the 60s and 60s. And eventually it it kind of gets calmed down by force. There's this mass exile of of elite heads of households. Um, And then the papacy eventually just says, look, we're just get out of here. Uh, (laughs) You know, leave. Um, Any, any, you know, any, any member of these families is proscribed and they kind of start again. And it's sort of you can only come back if you're going to join the fold again. Um, and I know I'm getting kind of crazy here with the sort of theorizing about generational loyalties and stuff like that, but this is what I see happening is that there's this frighteningly long outbreak of violence because there aren't the mediating mediating influences of of a missing generation of fathers um, who 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 grow old, right? And and as you grow old, you you sort of are less violent. This is typically how violence functions, right? It's it's very much a young man's game. Um and these fathers are not there to teach their sons politics uh because i i mean as i said earlier right like politics are all about families um and so without right. without that you know, you have a whole bunch of Mercusios growing up mm-hmm, um, Sure. yeah you know so it's 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 yeah. this sort of wild process that takes a long time to get under control and and the violence really you know does prompt um a a a long process of reestablishing that uh that that process by which Balinese elites will will participate in papal society kind of on their own terms. And it's, it's also not a, I mean, that's, you know, the book ends, but the history doesn't, right. Um, we see some, you know, there's feuds breaking out in the 1690s. There's feuds breaking out in the early 18th century uh, that it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not like it's ever done. Um, I mean, Napoleon kind of interrupts it at the end of the 18th century, but still kind of continues i mean there are people who probably have their traditional enemies in bologna today i know yeah. i mean i've got a colleague who works in modena um amanda madden and she certainly has um uh, existing descendants of of feuding families from the 16th century uh who who she's who she's spoken to in modena so
0: well there's no reason to just let that go well, exactly. you know you know that's it's blood's blood there
1: and it's um, this is this is this is your hometown yeah. For, for 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 families, right? I mean, it's one thing to say that in, uh, in 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 a colonial setting like Canada, where it's like this is your hometown, sure, whatever. Um, but in Italy, it's like this is your hometown, and it has been for a thousand years.
0: Yeah, like when you you see people, um, you know, there there are families in, here in Amsterdam, where where I live now, and they are in the palace, like they're exactly. living. In
1: yeah, the exactly that right. The
0: family built in the 17th century when amsterdam was getting rich or
1: or in bologna they're living in the family palace that was built in the 13th century which is also a museum
0: yeah right Yeah, absolutely and god yeah. knows florence right i just yeah. read some statistic about what percentage of florentine wealth is
1: oh yeah i remember yeah. that study drawing <laughs> out of the uh, Catasto, right where where you see the families uh like uh ferragamo and
0: uh, you're right? like huh. wow well, yeah uh,
1: all these names uh, uh, dating back to the 15th century right
0: goodness mm-hmm. yeah yeah all right and that probably i mean this is the the way you conclude the book is with going the discussion of from the immediate post 1630 years to the 1660s and i think we can uh, i think we've gotten gotten to that at least enough and if not i my hope is that this is tantalizing because i think this is a book that's really enjoyable to well, read thank you very I, much my hope is that this conversation won't sate our listeners but will instead encourage them to read more But so what's next for you? Is it still homicide?
1: No. Um, so, I mean, one thing I haven't actually got into at all is, is that I have a whole other side to me as a historian, which is not just a criminal archive rat. Um, but I am a, I'm also a digital historian. My official, uh, job title is, is assistant professor of European and digital history. Um, and so I have for many years, I've had these two separate projects. I had the Homicide Project, uh, and then I had a historical GIS project, which um, I, I'm sort of the co-director with, with Nick Terpstra, uh, called the Dechima, the, the Digitally Encoded Census Information and Mapping Archive, um, which is a historical GIS of 16th century Florence, uh, where we have taken a series of censuses from the 16th and early 17th century in Florence and mapped them on to... Um, contemporary map images, as well as sort of a Google Maps interface. Um, You can, you can Google it. It's Decima, D-E-C-I-M-A. And I've now, uh, my my next project is a project integrating the sort of uh, social historical GIS and the violence studies. I'm doing a project coming up on, it's called mapping the crimescape of early modern Florence, maybe mapping the crimescape of Renaissance Florence, because that, you know, sells books. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: it does. And uh, and what I'm doing is I'm going to get into the criminal records of 16th century Florence, uh, and I'm going to look for locational clues. And I'm going to try to map out the activities of a police state. Uh, the focus is going to be less on the crime um, and more on the court activity, sort of how it is gendered, how it is classist, what sort of... Um, uh, sexual politics are at work in police activity, uh, what sort of racial politics are at work in police activity. Um, trying to do a kind of expose on, uh, on, on, on the, the Florentine police from a, from a spatial perspective. So there's going to be, um, some layers built for the, the Decima GIS system, sort of mapping out the activity of the Oto della Guardia, as well as the, um, the Onesta court, as well as the, uh, the, the note court, the three sort of crime and decency courts okay. uh, in Florence. Um, we're going to map out prosecutions and investigations by them uh, within the sort of context of the, the census data that we have from the 16th century. So looking at the sort of socioeconomic patterns of um, not crime specifically, but of, of police activity actually um kind of trying to catch out police corruption and such like that
0: oh that's so very cool yeah Uh, i hope so that'll be exciting and can you see work uh with the the great and good nicholas terpstra one of my favorite historians uh
1: he's been a he was my undergraduate mentor and then my phd supervisor i've known him for a long long time he is he is one of the greats for sure
0: oh yeah um i wrote a book a review of uh lost girls and i probably shouldn't have been able As much as a middle-aged historian can be, I am a fangirl.
1: Uh. (laughs) I'll I'll tell him that. I'll pass this on to him, and uh, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Uh, Wonderful.
0: All right. Thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation.
1: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this.